The scripture reading this morning is in Luke, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's home and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's wonderful to be home. It's good to travel and it's good to have your mind expanded by new places and new ideas. But there's something about your own congregation and the people you know well and worshiping the Lord together that just is, is better than anything else. And often we are asked, what was your favorite part? And I have to, without any hesitation, say, I love Galilee. Don't like the city of Jerusalem nearly as much as Galilee. It was just beautiful. And we were able to go to the tiny city of Magdala, there was the motel where we stayed, and it looked like maybe that was about it. I, I, I think there was a pizza hut, too. But the um, Franciscans had bought a piece of land and thought they were going to build a church in honor of Mary of Magdalene. And when they started excavating, they were delighted to find, not too far down, the remnants of a first-century synagogue a synagogue that was made of black basalt and would have been there when Jesus ministered in Galilee. And undoubtedly, he taught in that place. And Mark and I just both kind of sat there with our mouth open, 
thinking that the people in that very place had heard Jesus teach. Just what a wonderful experience. And that just reminded me of this woman who was so essential in the story of Jesus. And I decided I wanted to retell her story to you today. Um, an amazing story of redemption and forgiveness. So I'm, I'm just going to tell it story form. I don't have any slides today because it all is right out of this one little place. Um, so hopefully you'll enjoy it. Mary was restless. It was Saturday night, and she was trying to do her needlework, but her mind was not there. It had wandered down the street to where the rest of her family was at a party, a party to which she specifically had been excluded. She wanted to go very badly because Jesus would be there. And if everything she had heard Jesus say was right, he had just a few more days to live. Within the week, he would be crucified. Jesus was her best friend, and she wanted to spend every single possible moment at his feet and at his side. But her brother and sister had been emphatic. Mary, no. Don't even think about it. It's just not wise. The people have finally stopped gossiping about your past. So don't stir up trouble. Your name was not on the invitation. See again? You cannot come. We'll bring Jesus home later. He'll spend the night with us, and you can talk to him then, once the party is over. Mary had spent days helping Martha cook for this dinner as she was catering for Simon's wife. It was a sumptuous affair, the very finest Middle Eastern food, and I'm sure there was falafel. We ate falafel and falafel, we ate falafel for breakfast, we ate falafel for lunch, we ate falafel for dinner, we ate hummus for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner, and lots of other beautiful salads and things too. But I'm sure that Martha probably made falafel. Mary had helped Martha dress, and then she watched very sadly as Martha and Lazarus walked down the street to Simon's house. Simon's house. Mary remembered it all too well. How could she ever forget? She'd been there many times. As a teenager, Mary had been graceful with a vivacious sparkle. She was unmistakably Bethany's prettiest girl. Everyone noticed her, including Simon, and he liked her too well. One afternoon, when Simon's wife had gone with her household help to Jerusalem to market, Simon met Mary on the road and invited her to come see his beautiful garden. Simon was a respectable man. She'd seen him leading the prayers at the synagogue, and she was flattered to be invited to his house. Without realizing she had anything to fear, she had followed him home. 
and she shuddered for a moment as she remembered all that happened that afternoon, how her innocence was lost, and where that afternoon had taken the rest of her life. Soon other men approached her when their wives went to market. Soon the people in this little town of Bethany began to talk. And Mary realized that God-fearing good men would no longer find her desirable. She felt trapped by this chain of circumstances, and it left her hopelessly shamed and hopelessly guilty. She gave up on trying to follow what she knew was right. Her reputation was ruined anyway. Mary remembered the arguments that began to rack and shake their once peaceful family. Martha and Lazarus loved her, and brokenheartedly they would say, now stop, no more, please, Mary, you don't need to do this. They insisted her behavior could change. She would agree. But the fatal combination of her beauty and her reputation made her the target of lust of the wealthiest and most powerful men that would come all the way from Jerusalem. The more Martha and Lazarus pled with her to stop, the more she would argue, and the worse she felt. Finally, the day came when she packed her belongings and she left her beautiful home and walked as far as her feet could take her and still speak her language. She stopped at Magdala, a little fishing village on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. No one knew her, and no one would care about how she spent her days or her nights. She wouldn't embarrass her poor family anymore. And like many other runaways, she practiced the only profession she knew to support herself. Tears came to Mary's eyes as she remembered what life had been like in Magdala how the men had used her, how the devil had controlled her, and how wretched and empty her life had been before Jesus. Before Jesus. Mary sat there in Bethany, watching the crowds walk down the street to Simon's house and hoped she could just catch a glimpse of him walking by. She remembered the first time she'd seen him, Business had been terrible. The streets of Magdala had been empty for days. Finally, she asked, where has everyone gone? And they said, they've gone to Capernaum. There's a new teacher, and he's wonderful. They'd gone to hear Jesus of Nazareth, and he might be the Messiah. The combination of her spiritual upbringing and her desperate state made it imperative for Mary to go and see and hear Jesus for herself. It wasn't difficult to find him. She just followed the crowd. Somehow she squeezed herself to the very front where she could get a really good look at Jesus. When he finished speaking that morning, he looked her right in the eye and asked, Do you need a friend? Do you need help? You're a long way from home. 
And the way he looked at her was so completely different than the way any other man had ever looked at her. It was like he looked right through her beautiful face and her perfectly shaped young body and could see her breaking heart. Luke 8 verse 2 tells us that Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary. It could be that he cast seven demons out all at once. But I imagine instead that she had a really difficult time learning and changing. He'd set her free from that demon of greed that drove her to fall back into her old ways whenever the wealthy customer would come with a lavish gift. She fell back again and again. Some habits and shame are just so hard to break. And I can imagine Mary crying tears of thankfulness now as she remembered how seven times she'd blown it and for seven different times Jesus had come back and found her and cast the demon out and told her once again that she could start over. Each time he forgave her, only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could free her from her, her sordid past. But he did not give up until she was totally free. Jesus loved Mary. He saw through her makeup. He saw through her dress. He saw through her hardness, all of her oblivious sin, to her precious, loving heart. Luke 8, verse 2 indicates that after the demons were gone, Mary spent time traveling with Jesus and his disciples. And the verse there says she even helped to support him with her means. Whether she bought the food and cooked the food or washed the disciples' extra robes, I don't know. But she was part of that entourage. You know, I never learned that in Sabbath school. But it was there. The disciples were not all men. Take a look at it. But every chance that Mary could take, she found herself at Jesus' feet. She would find herself listening to his teaching, her eyes and ears open wide to just soak all that truth in. She took Jesus seriously. She heard Jesus say that he was going to die. The disciples would not hear this. They dismissed it as unreasonable. It didn't fit their plans. He was the Messiah. He was not going to die. But Mary heard it, and she believed it. She always believed Jesus. That's what had set her free. It broke her heart to think that Jesus, the hope, the joy, the light of her life that had bought her sanity, was going to be dead within the week. Mary remembered the day that Jesus and his entourage walked through Bethany, right past Simon's house, right down the street where she had played as a little girl. She looked up at her childhood home 
and thought about how much Martha and Lazarus would love Jesus too. So trembling, she walked up that familiar walk and she knocked on her own familiar door. Her past had been forgiven. Her lifestyle had been changed. Now she could come home and live with her family with no shame. Martha opened the door and welcomed her sister with a tearful, long embrace. And Mary said, Martha, listen, I'm so different now. I've met Jesus. And the whole story of Christ's redeeming love spilled out. That evening, Jesus ate the first of many happy suppers at Martha's table. It was no wonder that he was loved in that household. He'd brought back their little sister, restored her self-respect, given her back the power of choice, and later he would bring back Lazarus from the dead. But that evening, as Mary remembered all these things, she realized how much she owed Jesus. She owed him everything. She went to her dresser drawer, and she carefully retrieved a small bundle wrapped in blue velvet. She remembered the day just a few days before when she had gone to Jerusalem because she'd heard Jesus say he was planning to die. She gave, she took her whole life savings, 300 denarii, the equivalent of a whole year of work for a grown man. And she walked the three miles to Jerusalem. She spent the whole day looking. She smiled as she remembered the shopkeeper's amazement as she repeatedly told him, that's lovely, but do you have anything nicer? Exactly the opposite of what most of us would say. He had not sized her up to be the woman who could spend the equivalent of $10,000 on a single bottle of perfume. She remembered the lovely fragrances she smelled that day, rose and violets and lotus and citrus and spice, wonderful smells, but none of them cost enough. And she had the money in her little pouch and she knew how much she wanted to spend. Finally, she blurted out, please bring out the very best that you have. I have the money. So he disappeared into his back room and returned with this beautifully carved translucent alabaster flask. He explained that it was filled with spikenard, which was the rarest of the rare perfumes. He went on to describe how spikenard was extracted from wildflowers that grow high in the Himalayan mountains, that it bloomed just a day or two on every year and had to be picked exactly when it was blooming. Then he showed Mary the flask and said that it was a lavish gift because it would be crushed open and only used all at once. Now, Mark sometimes gives me good perfume, and I use it only on Sabbath morning. I, I savor it and I hoard it, but this perfume was designed to be used all at once. And the shopkeeper said, this is the kind of gift a king would give a queen on their wedding night. 
Mary reached for her little pouch of coins and without a word began laying them out. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 10,000 denarii. Jesus was her king, and she loved him. If he were going to die, this would be her chance to say and to show her gratitude for all he had done. She wanted to say, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. I love you. She did not flinch at the price. In her mind, Jesus was worth every penny. There was a knock at the door, and it startled her from her recollections. She quickly rewrapped her perfume and hid it again and went to offer the knock, answer the knock. Where's Jesus? It was Susanna, another one of the ladies who traveled with Jesus. He's at Simon's house. Well, why aren't you there? I wasn't invited. It's a long story. Did you hear? They're going to proclaim him king tonight. Maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow. When I heard, I cut my visit with my family short. This is one event I don't want to miss, Mary. And Mary's heart began to pound. They're going to proclaim Jesus as king tonight? Oh, I've got to be there. Come on, come with me, Mary. Remember that the Mishnah says that if you invite a great rabbi for dinner, you have to leave your front door open. That way, everyone from the community can come and hear him teach. We're in the community. We won't eat anything. They have no right to exclude you. Come, come on, come with me. So as her friend waited, Mary deliberated. If they were going to proclaim Jesus to be king, she would be there. Gossip or no gossip. She would use that perfume to anoint him as king of Israel. She runs to her dresser drawer, she retrieves her precious bundle, and she joins her friend walking down the road to Simon's house. She'll be quiet. She will be so quiet and so still that no one but Jesus will know she's there. And that's where Luke picks up the story. I've gleaned the details from the Desire of Ages, and all four Gospels tell this story. But Luke 7, from verse 38 and onward, tells it most completely. As Mary sneaks in the front door, she smells the food, falafel, that savory, delightful cooking. Martha has outdone herself this time. It takes her a while for her eyes to adjust to the dim lighting. There's low tables around the pool and chaise lounges that stretch outward toward the walls. The guests are all reclining. Their heads are at the table, their feet are away from it. Mary looks for Jesus, the guest of honor. He's at the head table, and there he is with Lazarus on one side and Simon on the other, quietly bending low and covering her face so as not to be noticed. She slips once more to Jesus' feet. She sits there unnoticed for several minutes. Oh, she loves to hear him talking. She loves how he explains things. She loves how he speaks to people. But her ears pick up other conversations. Yes, 
She hears someone saying they need to proclaim him king. And she hears other people arguing. How can he be the Messiah? He's talking about dying. She sees Simon, the host for the evening, looking pious as always. She fights the temptation to hate him. Memories of her past envelop her, and then she looks at Jesus. What a wonderful, wonderful savior he has been. What a wonderful friend. Seeing these two men there side by side just wrenches her with uncontrollable emotion. She begins to cry, gently at first, but soon the tears are streaming down her face and she's becoming wet. Gently, she reaches out just to touch his feet. It's gritty. It hasn't been washed. It's still dusty from the day's travel. Her hands are wet from wiping her tears. So soon she purposely uses her well of tears to wash and soothe his calloused, dusty, travel-weary feet. She wants to kiss him, but all she can reach is his feet. So she kisses his feet again and again and again. His feet are salty from her tears. Jesus looks at Mary at his feet and smiles. He loves her, and she knows it. His smile makes it worth it all. Still unnoticed by all but Christ, she carefully unwraps that alabaster flask. This time, she takes no notice of its exquisite beauty, she can think of nothing but his smile. The flask's purpose is about to be fulfilled. With her thumbs, she crushes the seal and pours the perfume out. She takes it in her hand and she massages his feet and his calves, and there's still so much perfume left. She wants to anoint his head, but she doesn't want anyone to see her, doesn't want to draw attention to herself. But Mary has forgotten about something. She's forgotten about noses. Unwittingly, she has announced her act of love to every person in the room. That's spikenard. The richest connoisseurs recognize the scent. They also know how expensive it is and what it is worth. At least 300 denarii. A whole year's wage, she hears someone whisper. And then she hears Judas grumble. What a waste. That money should have been used to feed the poor. Soon the room is buzzing with speculation about the perfume. And they know now that she's there. They know how much it cost. And they speculate on how she earned the money to buy it. Flushed with her heart pounding, Mary just wants to sink through the floor. She looks around for reassurance, and Martha's standing at the wall, shaking her head in dismay to say, oh, sister, I told you not to come. And there's Simon with a self-righteous, judgmental scowl. 
She imagines him thinking, how dare you come to my house? How dare you touch the holy teacher, you filthy little piece of trash? We know who you are. We know your history. She hangs her head, hoping her hair will cover her crimson face. She just wants to pick up the pieces of that alabaster flash, flask and get out. She wants away from their criticism and their hateful looks. She tries to leave. But Jesus can't stand to leave her hurting. And for the first time on record, he speaks sternly to Judas. He could have said, Judas, you thief, you don't care about the poor. You just want the money for yourself. But even to Judas, Jesus is kind. That's amazing, isn't it? He simply says, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing for me. She has anointed me for my burial. And this story of her love for me will be told and retold and retold. It's one of the only stories that made it into all four Gospels. It's that important. Why is this story of Mary's gift so important to be told and told again? Certainly it's a sweet story, an affectionate story, a story of love. But why is it so important that it's in every one of the Gospels? This story is a symbol of the plan of redemption. When mankind needed a gift of love, God looked over heaven and found the most precious, expensive, and valuable thing in the entire universe and gave it to us. As Mary picked out the best she could afford, God gave us his son. As the precious alabaster flask was broken, so the precious body of Jesus was broken for us, crushed for us. And as there was an excess of perfume spilling that day, there was an excess of love poured out on Calvary for every single human being. How much is going to be wasted? How many billions of humans will turn away and refuse the grace that has been poured out. That exquisite box full of precious perfume is a symbol of God's gift to us in Jesus Christ. God cared enough to send the very best. His very best was Jesus. After Jesus defended her and asserted again that he would die, she somehow finds the courage to reach up and pour the rest of the perfume upon his head. Jesus looks at Mary at the tears of love that are still flooding her face, and he thinks the cross will not be a waste. Some will believe, and some will love me, and some will be saved. They will have gratitude for what I have done for them. And all that terrible week, as Jesus sweat blood in Gethsemane, as they spit in his face and flogged his raw back, as he cried out on the cross, he could smell spike and art. 
it still clung to his beard and to his hair. When Jesus smelled it, he remembered Mary. And he remembered those of us who would serve him with gratitude and would love him for what he has done for us. Our love and gratitude does make a difference to Jesus. He receives our praise and our love with joy. He longs to hear us tell him that we love him. He longs to see by our actions and attitude that his death changed our life. Well, my time is running out, but I need to finish this story. It's just too good to skip. Jesus still needs to confront Simon. As Simon saw this interchange of love and affection between Mary and Jesus, he wondered in his heart how a pure and holy man could allow such a rank sinner to touch him. Simon projects his own guiltiness and surmises about their relationship. He was totally misunderstanding the mission of Jesus and the way that God, although holy, bends down and loves you and I who are not. Simon never spoke his criticism aloud, but Jesus can read thoughts. Jesus quietly told Simon the parable that's found in Luke 7, verses 41 and 42. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither one had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of them both. Now, which one? will love him more. Then he looks into Simon's eyes, and then he looks at Mary, and kindly, quietly, and secretly, Jesus lets Simon know that he knows the whole sordid story. Simon's heart is melted at Jesus' kindness at not exposing him. He looks at Mary and remembers what he has taken from her. Suddenly, Simon realizes that he is the greater debtor. She was the victim. He was the perpetrator. And Simon realizes that he was the one that owed Jesus even more. He had just never realized his debt before. He answered, I suppose the one that had the biggest debt canceled. So Jesus turns back to Mary. She loves me very much because she knows how great her sin was and she knows she's been forgiven. Woman, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. In the presence of everyone who moments before have scorned her, in the presence of the very men that have used her, Jesus gives Mary his affirmation of acceptance. He says, you've been forgiven. And then I can imagine him turning to Simon and with a heart-searching glance and with another tender smile of acceptance, he communicates I will forgive you, too. But that still is not the end of the story. 
A week later, Jesus has died and risen again, and Mary goes on Sunday morning to the tomb with another bottle of perfume. Now, she spent all she had on the first bottle, so what, how she could do this, I don't know. But she finds the tomb empty, and thinking Jesus' body has been stolen, she sobs uncontrollably. Jesus comes up behind her and gently calls her name. She throws herself at his feet and clings to him. And while all heaven waits, while the angels line the streets of heaven waiting for their victorious king to come home, while the father anxiously waits to be re reunited with his precious son, Jesus takes time to comfort one solitary woman. That's how important she was. Finally, he tells her, Mary, you have to let go. I have to go see my father. I haven't been there yet. And then Jesus is gone, but she smells it on her hands. Spikenard. The fragrance of her forgiveness. And years later, after Jesus has returned to heaven, and after Simon is fully converted and becomes a leader in the young church in Bethany, Simon really loved to sit in his courtyard. Because after each rain, the sun would warm the clay tiles where Jesus had sat as a guest of honor. And the clay floor would offer up the scent of spikenard sweet and strong. The smell would remind him of Jesus' gentleness on that night when Simon came to recognize who he really was. Simon knows that too is the fragrance of his forgiveness. Can you smell it here today, here in Squim? Whatever your past has been, whether you've used or been used. Whatever has happened to you, no matter what you have done, Jesus died for you. God poured out the extravagant gift of his son, and he gave you personally his very best. It's the ones who have been forgiven most that love him most. How much do you love Jesus today? Turn your attention toward heaven, breathe deeply, and smell the fragrance of your forgiveness. Oh, Jesus, we do love you. Thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the price you paid. Thank you for bearing the sin and shame of every single one of us in this church today. And thank you for your gentleness that when we need to be convicted of sin, you don't expose us. You just wait patiently and tell us a good story and remind us that grace is available for whatever we've done. Lord, may we live out our love for you. 
May we not just feel it, may we live it. May we serve from the depths of our hearts. And may we truly know that whatever you ask of us, you are worth it. And may we give from the bottom of our hearts freely and lavishly the way you have given to us. We love you, Lord. Come and live in our hearts, and may that love change everything. We ask these things in the name of Jesus.